long time ago, I was told this thing about statues. I love statues. I know there's a lot of stuff going on in our society about statues. It needs to go. We need to have a discussion about it. But as I studied them and I was younger, someone told me that if you came up to a military statue, that you could tell how the person on the statue died by where the horse's hooves were placed on the statue. That if you came across a military figure and he was on a horse rearing back, that means that that person died in battle. If you came upon a person and, they, and the horse had one leg lifted, it meant that that person died of the wounds that they got in the battle, but they didn't actually die in the battle. And then if you came upon a, a, a military person mounted on a horse and both feet were down on the ground, it meant that they died some other way. They didn't die as a result of battles of battle wounds. And, and this is, you know, like this is like this is barroom trivia. This is this is impress little kids trivia. This is not something, you know, super important, whether it's right or wrong. But I accepted it as fact. I accepted it as as truly the thing that helps you decode the truth with that. And then I learned it's just it, it's utter fable. I mean, maybe somewhere somebody did that with one or two statues, but it's in no way universal. It's not like this law about statues that you have to place the horse's feet this way and then it communicates this or that. And even though it was just like this little piece of information, it was like, oh, it was terrible to learn that that wasn't true because, I, I mean, it just, I don't know. It was really hard. Well, amplify that feeling now by about a million times with what's going on right now. When, when something core to a person's identity, to their practice, to their, to their whole identity, and not only their identity, but their group identity, um, is exposed, is proven to be false, proven maybe even to be the opposite of what they thought it was. Well, most of the time, often, even most of the time, uh, that's just too difficult to handle. We become immediately defensive, even hostile to admit we are wrong simply cost us too much with that. Well, in our Texas week, Paul is bearing the brunt of just such hostility, murderous hostility. And we see it all around us in our, in our society right now, people, people hostily clinging to old ways of imagining what is true, what is good, what is beautiful, uh, instead of evaluating them in light of uh, what is coming out. So what are we to do, uh, y'all? What are we to do with this? Well, let's uh, dig into our text and see what we find. So pray with me. God of all truth, God of all comfort, God of all graciousness, we come to you this morning seeking your truth, not our own truth, not the truth of our culture or our tradition, but the truth that you reveal to us in your son, Jesus Christ, the ultimate source of truth. And we ask that you grace us with revelation and repentance and faith to respond to that truth as it deserves. Because you're worthy, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. So um, we're going to have you read the text now. It's a continuation of Paul's defense 
uh, before the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. He's been moved to another location, but, but it's a continuation of the same argument. So I invite you now to read that out loud and uh, uh, participate that where you, with that where you are. Picking up the story, Paul has gone back to Jerusalem. He's been arrested. He's been tried once there in Jerusalem and then sent um, down towards the coast here where he is put on trial again. And our big idea here is that we see that changing our mind can cost us dearly. Um, but love guides and sustains us, which is a, a point we're going to talk about in a minute. But it's important to see that Paul here, he is putting his whole identity on the line in defense of the truth. He's putting on his, his identity as a Jew, as a good Jew, um, by countering the accusations of the Sanhedrin, the, the Jewish hierarchy, and also his identity as a Roman citizen. He he could have easily just defaulted to that, but he is also not doing that. So it's costing him kind of both politically and religiously here um, with that. Uh, so what we also see in this defense is the utter corruption of the religious hierarchy at the time, that they are willing, they are willing to resort to sucking up to the leaders. That defense that Tertullius gives when he talks all sweet about Felix is total hogwash. That Felix was horrible. He was a horrible guy. The Jews hated him. And yet in order to try to, um, to convict Paul, they're willing to even set aside their hatred of the, the invading persecuting army and government to do that. And not only that, but, but to uh, bring false accusations against Paul and plot his murder. Like we see the utter corruption of religious hierarchy here in the, in the links they're going to, to protect what they think is true, not be challenged by the new truth that Paul is presenting to them. And likewise, the government, the government is doing what government does. It's seeking to shore up its own power, position, and privilege by whatever means necessary to maintain the status quo. They don't care what happens as long as they're still the ones on top calling the shots. So they're not interested in the truth. They're not interested in justice. They're just interested in making sure that they're still in charge with that. And it's important for us to identify that because we need to see who are we to emulate here. I mean, are we supposed to be the ones who hold on to our traditions, even if it means um, making common cause with an enemy? Even if it means bringing false accusations, slanderous opposition, or slanderous accusations, making, I mean, saying false statements about people we disagree with in order to win an argument. And ultimately, I mean, I know it's hard to conceive of here, but resulting to murder, resulting to to violence against those we disagree with? Or are we supposed to be the ones of privilege who just kind of sit back and go, hey, you guys just fight it out. You know, that's fine. Y'all fight among yourselves. But as long as we're in charge, as long as we get to maintain our privilege, we get to maintain our power, then we're okay. Is that what we're supposed to do? Is that who we're supposed to side with? Or are we supposed to be like Paul? Now, I want to insert a disclaimer here. Look, this, these kind of, these kind of, not arguments, this kind of information, this kind of discussion can feel very threatening. You can start to feel that 
that rising up in your chest, like, I'm not like that, or I'm not going to do that, or what is he saying? Pay attention to your emotions. It's okay. It's okay. But it's important that we pay attention because oftentimes our emotions will lead us to show, hey, what am I holding on to that may not be right? What do I need to release with that? Um, look, repentance, following Jesus is hard work, y'all. That's our big idea this way. Look, it cost us. When we get new information, when we get revelation, change costs us. And it's a long work. It doesn't happen overnight. It's not something that we just fix in a week or a weekend or at a retreat or by reading a book or switching churches or doing something like that. Oh, yeah, man, it doesn't happen that way. It's a lifelong work. And what is that work? Well, that work is repentance. We talk a lot about at Grace Church about how the basic gospel is repent. The kingdom of God is here. And this repentance, this word metanoia in the Greek, it, it, it indicates a change in your mind that leads to a change in your life. So it's not just one thing. It's not just saying, oh, statues, it doesn't mean anything where the horse's hoof is lifted or down on the statue. Okay, I've changed my mind. Great. But did it change your life? Like, like the repentance that comes from the church leads to life change once you change your mind. So it's not enough just to say, oh, I don't believe that anymore. I'm okay. No, you have to act on that. And that's why we get so defensive. I think that's why in, inherently we know, emotionally we know, hey, this is going to cost me if I change my mind on this. And that's why we fight so hard to entrench on our ideas. It's because we know that truly, if our mind is truly changed, it is going to result in life change. When that, and the Greeks knew this. The Greeks were, you so the Greeks were great. They would personify ideas in their theater. And so metanoia or repentance was kind of this shadowy, she was depicted as a shadowy goddess, cloaked and sorrowful, who accompanied the god Kairos, which is, which is the god of opportunity or of time or of revelation in a way. And metanoia, repentance, was seen as sorrowful because it was like that idea of when you missed a moment or you, or you were wrong about something and as a result you lost something. So metanoia in Greek, in the Greek idea, was a sorrowful thing. But it's crazy because in the Christian thing, yeah, there is sorrow involved, but ultimately repentance, metanoia, is a joyful thing. It's a thing that brings freedom. It's a thing that brings, that brings us out of darkness into light. It doesn't lead us into darkness. It leads us through darkness with that. And, and like many ideas in philosophy and in science and things, without the Christian understanding, they get part of it right. They lead us partway, but then they leave us hopeless, lost. And this Christian idea of repentance that we're seeing played out in Paul's life leads us actually to joy. It leads us through those things into freedom that we see. The promise of the resurrection is ultimately that. This promise of freedom and new life that comes through the death, the laying aside, the turning away from the old things with that. So let us be clear in this week in our text, Paul is the only one who is experiencing metanoia. He's the only one repenting. He's our, he is our one to emulate. He is our one to follow here. And this in large part is what it means to be a Christian, to be willing and committed to repentance and change. 
not just as a one-time event, but as an ongoing lifestyle. And as Christians, we see this destination beyond the sorrow and lament. We see repentance not as the end, but as a means, a means to the transformation or, or what it means to be born again. That is promised in Jesus with this. You know, it's such an interesting time that we're living in. Um, a friend texted me this week and, and she wrote this. She said, maybe it's our wheat from chaff moment. Maybe this is what it feels like to be tossed in the air, the end result seeing the unnecessary and edible parts of our early faith fall to the threshing floor as trash. Anybody out there feel like you're being threshed? <laughs> feel like you're being tossed up in the air and, and all the things that maybe weren't true or weren't good, weren't life-giving being stripped away? I mean, that's a... Listen, threshing is... That's tough, dirty work, hard work to get it out. But threshing is not the end. Threshing is a means. Threshing is a means that gets us to where we can separate that out, which is good for life and which is needs to be turned into fertilizer, burned up, done away with. There are lots of ways we do this. We do this by showing up here by continuing to, to dive into our personal disciplines and devotions, continuing, continuing to serve those around us. Um, the kids section, the kid and family section in our learning guide this week is incredible. Teresa did a great job about um, how to engage your family around this discussion with it. I really want to encourage, even, man, even if you don't have kids, it's a great section to read this week. Do it with your friends. Um, also a big thing. Our study on race, class, and the kingdom of God coming up. We've had, we've honestly, we've had more people sign up than we thought, and so we've taken we've taken a little extra time to make sure that we made room for people and and to find the right format to do it in. Um, originally, we had planned some things, but with honestly, here in Northwest Arkansas, with our numbers spiking like they are, uh, you know, we're we're committed to doing to meeting in ways that are the the most healthy for the most vulnerable. Um, and if that means that we continue to meet uh, physically distanced, that's what we're going to do because that's what love does is it looks out for the least among us. And so, um, so we're trying to make sure that we get the right technology there, but you'll be, you'll be in contact. I do need, or we'll be in contact um, really soon on how we're going to do this. I do need to make sure that everybody who has paid or who wants to be part of the class that we have your email because we've got to have your email and preferably a Gmail if you have it um, in order for you to access the materials. So you need to make sure that we have your Gmail with that. You may just want to send an email now to Stacy uh, reminding saying, Hey, just to make sure here's the email that we're going to use with this. Um, we're going to be forming into discussion groups that'll take place physically distance. Hopefully by the end of the study, we'll be able to meet together, but uh, there'll still be that option with that. So through all this, y'all, it's important that we don't lose sight of what motivates us. Um, I just read recently an author, Jonathan Bailey, said this. He said, spiritual formation begins and ends with love. If, if we don't hear this repeatedly, then we'll be tempted to twist the journey with Jesus into some kind of achievement scheme or self-improvement process. The way of Christ is not about earning righteousness or self-development. 
It's the total transformation of the human personality into the likeness of Jesus Christ, body, mind, heart, and soul. Look, without love, everything that we're are encountering now becomes just social engineering, guilt mitigation, self-righteous posturing. It's love that leads us into the depths of self-reflection. It's love that leads us into the sacrificial care of others. It's love that leads us, especially into the places where people are oppressed, are hurting, are being, are being stepped on, abused, choked, marginalized, uh, demonized. We as Christians, motivated by love, step into those spaces with them because that's what love does as it goes in where they're disadvantaged, marginalized, unheard, scared, left out. That's what we do. Love leads us to cling to the cross of Jesus, not our rights and privileges. You can't have both. You cannot pick up your cross and also be clinging to your rights, clinging to your privilege, clinging to your position. You cannot hold both. Picking up our cross means we lay down those things. In fact, love leads us to take those things and use them for the benefit of others, not just our own, but for the benefit of others. We're not like the religious leaders who, who use it for our own righteousness or the government who uses to control others. Like We use it for the benefit of others. That's what it means to lay down your rights and privileges with that. Love is what is was at the root of Paul's dramatic conversion, his costly conversion. It was love was what was at the, the basis of his preaching, his witnesses, witnessing, his enduring. It was at the core of his revelation, the core of his repenting, and the core of his faith. And love has to be what is at our core as well. It is the only reliable guide for us when we come crashing up against pandemic system reckoning and societal disruption. Love is our only reliable guide in that. Love is what invites us to repent and what makes repentance possible. Love is what ignites, sustains, and purifies our faith. Love is what holds us together when we can't even hold each other in person, when we can't even shake hands in person. Love holds us together. Love is what leads us to keep doing the work when we are tapped out, discouraged, confused, depressed, despairing. Love sustains us. Love in the person of Jesus Christ is the thing. Look, does changing our minds, our habits, our traditions, our worldview, our politics, our practices... Is, is the constant refining of our affections, our, our allegiances, our affiliations costly? Yes. Don't let anybody tell you different. It's costly. It hurts. It's confusing. But is it worth it? Well, we have the testimony. We have the testimony of Paul. We have the testimony of the early church, of the disciples, of the women and men who have, who have endured persecution and suffering for generations. We have 2,000 years of the witness of the church that, that declares loudly, yes, 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 it's worth it.
it's worth the effort. It's worth the pain. It's worth the work. The love of God that is expressed in Christ Jesus is more than sufficient to guide us, to encourage us, to strengthen us, to see us through. So I want to invite you now to, to get your communion elements. Jesus knew that we would need to be reminded of this. Listen, this is not, again, this is not something we get just one time and then we're good. It's constant reaffirmation, reminding of this. And that's why he gave us this practice, this practice of taking this meal, of reminding ourselves as we take into our body the bread and the cup. Yeah, Jesus gave everything. Jesus gave it all. He gave he gave his body, he gave his blood. But also we take it in with the hope that we know that that body was resurrected, that God demonstrated the righteousness of God in Jesus, the love of God in Jesus by resurrecting and seating Jesus at the right hand of God. And so, like I said, repentance is not an end in itself. It's an end. It's a means. It's a means to understanding the unending love of God given to us. So I invite you to take your take your bread and on that last night, just as Jesus did, he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. Take and eat. And likewise, he took the cup. This is my blood poured out for you. Take and drink. During this time, I also want to invite you to continue worship by giving. Y'all, we can't do this alone. We have to do it together. And so that involves the giving of our offering. It demonstrates that none of us here is without something to give, and none of us here is without need. And so we do that. And then also as you're doing this, as you're taking the, the elements, as you're, as you're considering your offering and giving your offering, consider what it is you need to do in response to this message. Again, it's not just about changing your mind. It's about changing your mind in a way that leads to action. And sometimes we need the encouragement. Write it down. Tell somebody. Text Text me. Text a friend. Say, this is what I learned this morning. This is what I need to do. Will you help me? But act on it, y'all. Don't just let it be more information. Don't just let it be more chaff building up on top of the weed. Anyway. It's been great to be with you this morning. I miss you, miss every one of you so bad. I can't hardly stand it. Um, hang in there. Uh, Bailey, thanks for the worship. It's so good to see the Huddlestons. Um, yeah, talk to you soon. Stay strong. Grace and peace, y'all.